Hey, and welcome to Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush, the podcast where we get to know the scientists behind the research to find out they wound up in amazing places randomly, including avocado orchards, or that they may have made friends and families suffer because they never tried Beano until recently. Maybe the last one's just me, your host, Ben Rush. I hope you're hungry for this episode as we will be talking about avocados, food, and fruits with some professional wine pairings as well. Quick announcement, I just released a trailer for the podcast, so now you can share what the podcast is about easily with friends. You can use the little share icon on your streaming platform to show your peeps what the podcast is about, and you may want to right now. I've heard friends, family, and other grad students listen to the podcast say it's been helpful to them when they've been feeling down. With the end of another pandemic semester coming up, consider sending the pod to a friend who is stressed. It's been helpful to me just to hear that successful scientists have also struggled and doubted themselves. Now, let's get to this fruitful conversation with Amaya Atucha. Maya, thanks for being on Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush. Thank you for inviting me. And to start off like we usually do, can you just give me your name and pronouns you prefer? My name is Amaya Atucha, and my pronouns are she, her, her. All right, thanks. And a physical description of yourself? Um, I'm about 5'4". I usually think about in centimeters. <laughs> so I'm 163 in centimeters. I have uh, brown eyes and brown hair. Uh, and I'm very fair, um, pretty Latino-looking woman. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, and what are your roles on UW's campus? I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Horticulture, but I'm also the fruit, fruit crop extension specialist for UW Division of Extension. Cool, fantastic. And so I'm going to ask you perhaps the most challenging question uh, up front. Can you give me a two-minute research pitch of... I thought research. that you were going to ask me how old I was. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm still working on my skills to interview people. I, I'm not there yet. So most of my work is related to um, how the environment and the climate affects fruit production and finding management that can help commercial fruit growers in the state of Wisconsin produce better fruit, uh, more fruit in a more sustainable way. Yeah, and all as from what I've heard, all sorts of different fruits. I work on all sorts of things that are growing here in Wisconsin. So I work obviously cranberries, which is our uh, top fruit crop in the state, and the cranberries are the the, the state fruit. So that's a big part of my pro uh, program. But I also work with grapes, wine grapes. I also work with apples and also some berries, raspberries, strawberries, blueberries. So I used to work in avocados and citrus before this. And I also used to work on peaches. So I've been, you know, shifting around. So any, any, just throw any fruit here. I'll just make it work. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm going to ask you specifically about those avocados, but I'm going to back up a little bit first. I found out about you because I live with one of your grad students. Um, ah. I, I live with Becca. And oh, when great. I yeah. was, uh, 
conceptualizing all of this and trying to find people who'd be fun to talk to. Becca was just like, you got to talk to Amaya. Uh, she's kind of like the go-to person <laughs> well, for a fort. I'm glad that, you know, Becca think I'm, I'm an interesting person, even I'm her advisor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, we'll see, you know, we'll see after this interview if her perception changes or anything like that. But my favorite question for all the guests, who was your first crush? What would I have been? I had a neighbor when I was a kid that I really, really, I was like probably like nine years old. Like things that you remember. I don't remember much when I was much younger, but I had a neighbor uh, and he was, uh, he lived in the street that was uh, right. It was a hillside. We lived in a, in, a, in a big hill that was like, had many, many streets. And, 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 and he, we, I used to see him playing in, in like a, a playground that was right there. And I had a, huge crush on him and uh, I never saw him again afterwards I and mean, we moved and we never saw him again and I and I was very shy and I don't think I ever spoke too much of him but I had a huge crush and I used to go all the time to play to that playground because I knew he was always going to be there <laughs> <laughs> yeah smooth yeah. yeah it's probably some skills he used later on in life too I bet oh yeah I, I perfect a lot of that skills later on <laughs> <laughs> fantastic um and I think that's you know from age nine, from my little research that I've done about you, um, is that the time that you were on an avocado farm? Not really. Actually, this is a, this is the story. Everybody, I mean, when people ask me, like, you know, what, where I'm, so I'm originally from Chile and I grew up in Chile and uh, my parents have an avocado orchard there. So people think that I grew up at the orchard and they're like, oh, it makes sense. She bought some fruits, you know, too logical. Uh, connection. Well, the reality is that not. I grew up in a city by the by the coast in Chile, like right in in central Chile, which is sort of like Mediterranean climate. And my dad uh, was an engineer, and he worked for Shell, the oil company. And my mom was an English teacher. Uh, and nobody in my family ever had anything to do with agriculture. Nothing. But by the time I started college, my dad always wanted to have sort of like an orchard on a place on the countryside. And he bought a property and he said, well, you know, you're studying horticulture. How about we do this together? I'm like, yeah, sure, let's do it. And so he bought that. And the place where I went to college was like right in the same city where he had bought this piece of land and started the orchard. And so my entire family, like my mom and my siblings, we all moved there. Everybody was super upset because this was in the countryside and we were living in the city, in a big city. And my siblings, you know, were sort of my same age. We were all around, you know, between 17 and 23. And everybody's like, why are we moving to the, why are we moving to that town? It's dead. There's nothing to do. And I was so happy because college for me was like two hours away from my house. Like, right, like I could, you know, I was right home and I was great. Um, and so I started that orchard. My dad didn't know anything. I barely knew anything. I mean, I think about, you know, think about the college students that are in their first year here. What would they know about running an orchard? You don't know anything. But we made it work. And, and then I left. And so my parents are stuck with that orchard now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the story about, about the avocado. So really, I don't have, like, growing up, zero background on, on anything or didn't know anything about agriculture. Yeah, were you interested um, in science while growing up? No, actually, I was. Uh, my mom is an artist, 
so uh, her she she went to college to be a, a teacher and um, a college English teacher, which things are a little bit different than the way that they're structured in Chile. But um, but she didn't work. But she was an artist and she's a sculptor. And she, when I was a kid, she used to take me with her when she went uh, to the studio that they had. And and in the meantime, so I was not like bothering her all the time. She enrolled me on on drawing lessons. And so it was like mostly for like grown ups. So, so there I was like a you know seven, eight year old sitting there and drawing all of like these these models. A lot of them sometimes were naked, and I was just like drawing, and I loved it, and I loved drawing. And at some point, you know, maybe when I was like fifteen, I thought like you know what, I I I really have this interest in in art, uh, but I also kind of like you know like like math. So maybe I'll go into maybe being an architect. I mean, I could, I, I kind of like this. I was for a while really interested in that. And then maybe on my last two years of high school, I, I discovered biology. And I really like biology. And I'm like, oh, I love this. I love to like learn how things work. And I, I develop a huge passion for it. So when was the time to apply for college that is very different from here, there's, we, the way that it works there, things have changed. This is, you know, what, 20 years ago? Uh, we used, the, the only way to get in, um, into college was to, to take a test, something similar to the SAT here. But that's, that was the only score. Was you get that score, that's everything you needed. It doesn't matter anything else. There was no essay, no nothing, just that score. And by that time I had switched that I wanted to go to dentist school. I want to become a dentist. Uh, but I, didn't get the score that I needed. And I got the score that I needed to go to a school that was a private school, but it was um, in another city, like three hours away from where my parents live. And my dad said to me, you are gonna study where I can see you. And so he's like, you're not moving away anywhere. And I was like, what do I do? Like. I like biology. I thought I was going to do this. Now I don't have the score to do this. I also like math. And my dad said to me, like, why don't you study? Um, and the, the, the actual, like, my, my, my undergrad is on uh, something to be, be translated as um, agriculture engineering. Why don't you study that? I'm like, well, I don't know anything about plants, whatever. And I got in um, and I did really well. The first, you know, year I did great. I had like really, really good grades. And I was not a great student when I was in school. I was an okay student, but never those, you know, that get the awards of the best students academically. But I was doing really well in college. I was doing great. I was getting like the top grades in every single class and I was doing great. And so I decided to stay. And I stayed and I liked it. And I kept doing really well. And that's how I got into agriculture, knowing nothing, just, you know, what we're talking before, just a random chance. My dad said, like, why don't you apply to this? I'm like, the same way that I apply and it went well, it could have, I could have not liked it and ended up doing something completely different. Yeah. And that's uh, wonderful too. You got to learn all these techniques and probably, you know, the theory in school and university and then translate it back uh, on the farm or the orchard right away. I mean, some of them, yes, but also a lot of it is I learned through the process when we when we planted and, and established the orchard, I, I didn't have any of the technical knowledge to do that. So my dad hired uh, um, um, a horticulturist and, and he would visit and, and you know, he would do a report 
And, and when he would visit, I would spend that time with him, just like learning all the stuff that he was saying and telling us what to do and, you know, questioning, like, why are we doing this way? Why not this other way? And, and that's how I, I really got, I, I think I got a, a great experience that I was, as you say, like learning the, the theory of it, but also I was experiencing like how to put those concepts into like the technical and practical thing, which when I, when I think about it now, when I, and I, um, the course that I teach to, to the students here at UW that's on fruit production, I think about like, ah, oh, you know, that's something that I always feel like the students are lacking. We, we give them, we, we, you know, give them all this information and all these technical things, but what the only, the only way of really kind of like learning and of cementing it is like when you have that experience. And I always feel like, oh, wouldn't it be great if we could, if we could do this during the summer, or if I could teach this course and have all the students come to the research station and actually look at what I'm telling them, we can. So that's that's something that I, that I always struggle with. It's like how to give the students that experience that they can put together those concepts uh, before they go out and work. So that would be like a, such a huge advantage. Yeah. Do you ever get uh, frustrated with the U.S. food system that most people don't see where their food is grown? I don't think it's only in the U.S. I think it's everywhere. You know, just people just don't 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 understand. Uh, I, and I was certainly one of them. I didn't know anything. I mean, for me, it was just like a, we would go to the market and we would go to the grocery store my entire life until we we my my parents bought that that property and and we started farming it. Uh, I didn't know anything, and so yes, it's it's kind of frustrating. And sometimes I just don't realize that I, when I you get like people asking you this kind of like very basic question you're like really you don't know this or like sometimes like when i when i people tell me like well how fruits come from the flower i didn't know that i'm like what it's like like the most basic things people don't don't know them and well i guess i don't know a lot of basic things when people tell me things about like i don't know like taxes but then you think everybody eats everybody eats <laughs> so people should know this I feel the exact same way about uh, trying to fix cars. Uh, I, I joke and say, like, if you try to get me to fix your flat tire, I will wind up breaking your engine. Um, but yeah, you're right. It's kind of just like whatever experiences that you grew up with. Or whatever experiences you've been exposed to. It's not even that you grew up with things that, you know, or that you or you have an interest in and then that you read about them and that you learn about it. Uh, there's certainly so many things that I have zero interest and they are part of my daily life and I still have to do it. So I try to ask somebody else to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Getting specific into the avocados, were they Haas avocados that you're growing? They were not Haas, which is something, this, that's another good story because people always think about avocados and they, and they only, they think that the avocados are the Haas and that everything looks like that. But there's a lot of, so avocados are native from Mexico. They're not even native from Chile. For some reason, they start, oh, not for some reason. The reason why they, they've become uh, so, such a big industry in Chile is because the climate is great for growing uh, avocados in that region where, where my parents have their orchard. It's, it's the perfect Mediterranean climate. Um, and that's one of the reasons. And then they also like the economy of the country is based so much on export, exporting. And so they had this kind of system already set up in, in which avocado just started 
as a great potential for, for making it a big industry to export avocados, and it just really exploded. That was one of the reasons. But avocados are native from Mexico, and in Mexico, there's so many different types of avocados. There are also some of them are native from Guatemala. There are different areas of, of, of uh, a different range from where you can find wild avocados. But the ones that my parents were growing was one that it was sort of like a local selection of that area. And the reason why is because we got a lot of spring frost. And so when you get spring frost, the flowers that are exposed, they get damaged because of cold. And that's funny because that's most of what I work here in Wisconsin is about cold. Uh, and uh, they get damaged, but this specific uh, selection, local selection, tends to be a little bit more cold hardy, so it works better and you have more consistent yield every year. But the problem is that you can't export them because it's, a, it's, a, it's one that has like a, a long pear shape and the skin is very, very, very thin. And what happens with avocado and the reason why half is so popular is because the, the skin tends to be a little bit thicker, but it also turns black on the outside. So you can't see the bruises. Mm-hmm. Smart. But if you have some of these other varieties that have very thin and green skin, as soon as you press them, you will see outside there's a bruise and people will not want to buy it because it has a bruise. Yeah. And so these avocados that, that, that my parents grow, go most of them go for the local market. Yeah. When I was in um, Oaxaca, Mexico, there was a variety, you know, maybe the size of your pinky. Um, that was thin skin. You could just eat the whole skin. Um, and there's so I, many, so many, and so much better than half. <laughs> I, yeah, I bet. Um, it is one of my life's dreams to have a strong enough stomach and maybe enough money to just travel and eat lots of different fruits. Uh, that's what I asked my friends. Like, what did you, what fruit did you try when you're abroad? Cause that, you oh, just I can't love get that. everything. When, when I go anywhere I go, I always like to go to the local market and buy fruit and eat like all the food that I can. I, I was really, really fortunate when I was in grad school. I, I, I met, you know, wonderful people and made like really good friends. And I had a friend that was from Vietnam and I got a chance to visit her. Oh my God. When I went to the market there, I was just going crazy, crazy. I would just buy all this fruit and just go back to her house and just eat and eat and eat and eat and taste all of the different things. Oh, love it. Yeah, it, just all the colors, sizes, and shapes. Um, it's just—it's not the same as going to the grocery store at all. Uh, and for me, are things that I've read about and I know about, but I've never had the the chance of of eating them. You know, most of the tropical ones never had the chance to eat them fresh, because in Chile we don't grow tropical fruit because we don't have tropical climate. We are either Mediterranean or kind of like subtropical. It never gets that hot. So you know, all of those those. Um, tropical fruits whenever i go to any of those regions that's exactly what i want to do i just want to taste all of those fruits i'm such a nerd i know but i love it <laughs> I, I mean that's exactly what i want to do i think we'd have a lot of fun if we ever went on a trip together I just eat as much food as we possibly can and you know what i've never gone to mexico i would love to go to mexico i never never gone to mexico and, and i tell this to, to my family in chile which for them mexico is like really really far and they're like how come you just right there but if you think about it i'm not right there it's pretty far no. from wisconsin yeah. but for them it's just like it's right around the corner because chile is so far away from everything that you know if you take a plane and it only takes takes like three hours to get there by plane it means that it's right next to where you are 
Uh, yeah, maybe hopefully one day, you know, once everything opens back up, like I, I can't recommend Oaxaca highly enough for just, I mean, I had the issue of, I, I was extremely hungry. I was walking around with a friend and I think we wanted just to find a good spot to eat, but there were so many places to eat that it took us an hour and a half just to decide because, uh, the, you know, street corn vendors or the, which are like really large quesadillas with some like local, uh, herbs and fillings in there. So that's the word Tlayuda. So T-L-A-Y-U-D-A, which is a large fried or toasted tortilla. Uh, I had them with blue corn with refried beans, lettuce or cabbage, avocado, sometimes meat, special Oaxacan cheese and salsa. One of the best foods I've ever had. And if you can get down to Oaxaca, they are everywhere. They're wonderful street foods. And I hope you can get there sometime soon. Just everywhere. Like you can't go wrong. It's 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 considered like one of the culinary areas of That's what Mexico. that's what it's great when you go to a place and then you know somebody, like a local person. And then you just you know, just give yourself like surrender yourself, like just like take me everywhere or give me anything that you want. One one of the funny stories about actually Vietnam is that we were in Vietnam and so we were with with a friend of mine that's actually from Madison. He he grew up in Madison and, and we went to visit him. He was, um, he, this was, we had two friends, one friend that, that her family was still living in Vietnam and this other friend that his family had immigrated here to the United States. And he was, he grew up here in Madison and, and he, um, he was there doing his research for his PhD. So, so we were there with a, a lot of friends. We all went there and we were in the street and we were my friend John and John would just like, you know, buy stuff from the street and just like shove it at my mouth. And just, I was eating all this food from the street. I had no idea what I was eating. Well, I also didn't know that. I also didn't know that I was pregnant. Mm-hmm. And I ate all this stuff from the street. Like people just like cooking them with like pots on the street itself. Like, Zero hygiene. I have no idea. I was like, I didn't care. I was just like eating all the stuff. Fortunately, everything went well. My kid was born just fine. Didn't have any problems. I didn't get sick at all. But I think about all that stuff that I ate. It was delicious. I would absolutely do it again. One of the best experiences ever. Maybe your kid has a really strong immune system now, too. I, I One thing is that he's very open to it and think, so, so maybe that's what he got from that trip. That was yeah, yeah, he loved Vietnam too. He was there trying everything. <laughs> um, I'm going to go back to when you said you left your family from the avocado orchard. Was where did you go after that? So I I came here. I came to to the United States for grad school, and that's uh, that's another story of uh, of again. Maybe maybe the theme of, of today's conversation is, you know, making those random decisions and not knowing how that just basically defined your, your path. Um, I had finished uh, my bachelor's degree and I was working for a very small consulting company with a, a bunch of, of, of horticulturists that work on fruit production and especially on, on avocados and citrus, which is that area that, that has a lot of that uh, where my parents live most of, of the citrus and the avocados are produced there in Chile. And so my work was kind of like, you know, sort of like related with like a little bit of research and also consulting. So I would, you know, like do a small little research project, very much focused on, on, on management for giving recommendations for growers. So things like, you know, I would test different types of pruning or I would test maybe a product that uh, was released for a control of a pest or, you know, 
different little projects at a small scale, and with that, we would generate information afterwards to, to provide uh, advice for, for the growers that were our clients. And so I, I, I started thinking, like, you know what, I, I kind of really like this. I, I, maybe, I can, maybe I can study a little bit more. Maybe I can find a program that would um, provide me more information and I could gain more uh, knowledge to, to be a better consultant. And so I had, I had a, um, the people that work with me, one of the, one of the senior consultants, uh, they had gone to um, Valencia in Spain to work and learn about citrus production. They had a small master's, but it was not a master's on research, but rather a master's what was, was called like, kind of like a professional study. You take like two years of courses. You just go there, you just take courses, just knowledge. And I thought like, that would be great. Wouldn't I love to spend two years in Spain? Let's do it. My boyfriend at the time, I told this to my boyfriend. My boyfriend was like, you know what? I told this. Do you remember this professor we had when we were in college? We both studied the same. And I was like, yes, yes, I do. Well, I told him that you wanted to do that. And he said that why don't you contact him, that he has some ideas about, you know, grad school or, or, or going and, 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 you know, furthering your studies on, on fruit production. So I went and I contacted this, this professor. He was sort of like a young professor at the time. And he was one of the worst because he was, I mean, he, his class was super tough, super, super tough. He had just come back from getting his PhD and he was really tough. But I learned a lot in his class and I, and I really respected him. He was great. And he told me, well, I've heard that you want to go to grad school. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm thinking about maybe doing this. And he's like, you know what, have you, have you ever thought about going somewhere else? And have you thought about uh, maybe a master's in science or a PhD? And for me, a master's in science and PhD meant nothing. I really didn't know what that meant. Like, I, I, I was like, what's that? What? He's like, you know, have you, you, I don't know if you've ever heard of this place. It's called Cornell. I'm like, Cornell? No, never heard of that. He's like, well, they have a pretty good program there. It's a pretty good university. Maybe, maybe you want to try and, and apply. I, I, he had done his PhD there. I know some people there. Why, why don't you, you know, send your application there? I'm like, and Cornell, where is it? New York, where's New York? I don't know anything. All of my reference were always California because our climate is just the same as California. So everything we knew was from California. And growing avocados, obviously California or Australia or South Africa, that's where all my reference were coming from. So I didn't know anything. I sent an application and I got in. So now what do I do? Now I go. Okay, I go. But what am I going to? Like, I don't know. I'm going to study. And what is an RA? And what is a TA? And like... I didn't know anything. Good question, Amaya. An RA is a research assistant and a TA is a teaching assistant. These are our positions that grad students usually have to help cover the costs of actually going to graduate school. I bought my tickets and I moved to Ithaca, New York and I started a PhD and I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what a PhD was for and I didn't know anything. I only knew that I was going. And that's how I ended up in grad school. Instead of being in Valencia in Spain, I ended up doing a piece. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, maybe not as welcoming as the climate, but then you get to expand your horizons with different fruits. Oh, I'm going to tell you what the worst thing was. This I'll was go for in, it. This was in January. So I, I started in the spring semester, and the South Hemisphere is the opposite. So December for us is the middle of the summer. You know, the summer, you know, just like super warm, going to the beach every day. Right? And I get to Ithaca, New York on January. There was like three feet of snow. It was freezing. 
I cried the first week. I was like, what the hell did I just do? Where am I? I didn't understand anything. I was alone. And I was not, I, I was, I was, uh, you know, I was not 20 years old. I was about 25. So I was like, I felt like I was like 15. I'm like, oh my God, I want to go back. It was such a trauma. Oh, it was gray and dark. And I, when I started the program and I started meeting people and, and, you know, having friends and all of that and just figured out how things work and, and getting a hang of the language. That was another thing. It's so hard. Um, I didn't understand anything in class. I, people were talking, like the professors were like lecturing. I was like, what, what are they talking about? I remember specifically one, I was taking this class on, on environmental chemistry and the professor, the entire lecture was about lead. And I didn't know what lead was. So I sat there. I still I remember that vividly for 50 minutes. This guy's talking about lead. And I'm like, what does lead mean? And there was no phone. You couldn't Google it. Yeah. Was it also, I'm imagining you were maybe able to go see family once a year or something like that? Yes. Mm-hmm. I, w- I, was, I was very fortunate uh, that I was able to go once a year to visit my family. But then part of my research project was in Chile. So I, I, I would go there for like two or three months and spend my time, my, my, my field season in Chile collecting all my data. And then I would come back here and do all of the work in the lab. But yeah, that was great to spend a lot of time there. Yeah, clever. Um, I'm assuming, you know, before the pandemic, maybe that pattern still held that you're able to see family every once in a while maybe is anyone moved here by chance no but my dad has a sister that lives in houston and so i i had you know family at least here in the same though i i you know never had the time to just go and visit that much but but yeah i've been very fortunate i always have had the possibility and the means to be able to one i know it's not the same for everybody to, to go down there and visit and my parents uh, love traveling, so they've come many, many times to visit me. And uh, yeah, I'm very lucky in that respect. Yeah, great. Yeah, I'm glad you're able to see your family. Um, I'm curious too. Like you were mentioning, uh, when you were growing up, you were doing a lot of uh, art classes and drawing. Um, do you think like that attention to detail then went into when you're like pruning or trying to look at health of different plants and whatnot? Mm, I don't know. I never thought about it that way. Um, Maybe I don't know. Really, I've never, I've never thought that that would be two things that I put together. Like my, then my art. I mean, my my entire artistic side got kind of like suppressed because I I never invested any more time on doing anything related with art. Um, though I love art, but funny enough, with the pandemic, I started painting. Ah, nice. Because I've been, you know, stuck at home and I was like, I want to, I want to do something. And, and, you know, as I say, my, my mom is always like, you know, making art and my sister, who is not an artist, but also, you know, loves art. She's, she's very good at drawing and she would just paint things for me. And one time this year, she's like, you know what, why don't you do it yourself? Why don't you start painting? Why don't you start? And I'm like, you know, why not? And so I, you know, bought a bunch of material and started painting. And actually I've painted a lot and I, you know, changing the decorations of my house with my own paintings. So that's due to the pandemic. I would have never done it if it wasn't for that. Uh, are you painting fruit or is it something else? No, no, no. I, I guess I keep my passion separate. 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no fruit or no plants or nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so then uh, you were in grad school uh, at Cornell. Um, what was your next step after that? I, I had no clue. There you go. Again, it's just like the story of my life. I never have a clue what I'm going to do. But I was about to finish. Uh, I had a one-year-old baby. And uh, I was, okay, well, I guess it's time to find a job. So what, what am I going to do? What happens, like the logical thing is like people start looking for academic jobs. And so all of my, my friends and my peers were, were looking for academic jobs. So I had a sense of like what you had to do to find an academic job. Uh, uh, and so I said, okay, well, I'm going to figure out posting. So what, what, what's out there? But I also wanted to look at the industry, but I didn't have anybody that was working in the industry. So like, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know who to ask. I didn't know where to look. And so I went, the only thing that I knew, I went to our, you know, society, your professional society, where you can see a lot of posts for, for, for academic positions. And I applied for one and I got it. So there I was, I graduated, um, before even before I graduated, there was, there was this was at least a semester before I was defending my PhD. I was offered this position and I accept this position and say, sure, I'll I'll start. You know, I think it was like June first. Well, I didn't even go to my commencement because I had forgotten that I had to go and I had already started the job. So like you know, all of these crazy things. Um, and I moved to Colorado. I, I accepted a position as an assistant professor with Colorado State University. And I moved to Colorado with my husband and my one and a half year old baby. And I had no idea what I was doing. And I had no idea what to do. I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know anything. I think that as a grad student, you tend to, I don't know, it's, it's overwhelming. I mean, I, I think about when I was a grad student, you just have your project and you like, put all of your energy on that. And then you have your advisor, which is like most of the time you're like, what the hell is my advisor doing when I, we do all the work in the lab? And, you know, like you don't get to see really the work, as you said, like the admin work that goes behind because you are the one in the lab doing the work. Although I feel like I missed so much opportunities of learning of what my advisor was doing as, as a professor. And so when I started my first job, I was like, oh my God, I wish I had learned about like how to write a grant or I wish I knew about this or I wish I would have asked about this. I know that, you know, that my advisor was doing all these things that I never asked. Um, and so there I was with my first job. Uh, I was at a research station. It was like about five hours away from the main campus. And it was a research and extension position working with um, apple and peach uh, growers in, in Western Colorado. A beautiful place like I mean beautiful it's uh you get you know all like the mountains and and it's a valley with a you know really nice uh, river and full of vineyards and orchards I mean a, a great 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 place to be but uh it was really tough because I just didn't have I, I just didn't know what I was doing I, I really felt like I didn't know what I was doing at that time I thought like ah, Maybe I should have done a postdoc. So that's postdoc as in a postdoctoral position. So these are in between grad school and going on to some other job. Sometimes. 
it's up to really the person if they want to get one or not. Sometimes you need one to do a faculty position at an academic institution. Sometimes you just want to try out new skills. Sometimes there's an economic bottleneck that won't let you become a professor even though you want to, and so you wind up being a postdoc for multiple years. Not that I'm saying that's a problem or anything like that, but at least you now know what a postdoc is. No, I'm just like, I wish I had, you know, had more experience, was better prepared. And I felt like really underprepared, especially it's tough to be a woman in science and to be Latino and international and trying to go to a place where it's very close in terms of like community. It's like, you know, a small community of growers. And in agriculture, it's mostly male, you know. And there I was like, you know, this like small little Latino woman with an accent telling me, you know, these peach growers for generation of generations what to do. And of course it was it was I was I felt like very intimidated and at the same time I felt like it was gonna be really hard for me to to um to change the way that you were doing things. And at the same time, I mean, to be very candid with you, I didn't even know what I was going to recommend them to change. You know, I, I didn't know much about pitch production. So it, all of those things and being a mother and having all these other things together, it was, it was a lot of pressure and questioning whether I was doing the right thing and, and that's where I should be and, and that actually I was meant to, to be a researcher or to become a professor. Um, it was hard. My, and, and, you know, I think it was mostly my, my husband was, you know, was, was a, a great support in that area just to, just like, do what you can. Just do what you can. You'll see how things are going to start, you know, working out and working out and working out. So it was a, it was a, a very, very difficult start for my career as a, as a professor. Right. Yeah. And I can imagine. And, um, you know, even on this podcast, when I, did you catch that podcast? As in, oh, hey, dear, do you want to be on this podcast here? Or welcome to the podcast where we discuss lily pads, brio pads and menstrual pads while in the comfort of my own pad. When I've asked uh, women professors, when they discuss like having kids, they can be the first one in their department to have a kid while they're starting their faculty career. Um, and so, you know, that's a couple full-time jobs in itself. And then you also have to manage uh, a not always present work-life balance with academia. Yeah, yeah, that that is definitely true. I feel like you know I've been very fortunate that when I had when I had my my first kid and when I was in grad school, my advisor was extremely supportive. If anything, I remember him telling me, "Now is the time to have kids. Grad school is the perfect time to have the kids." I'm like, "Well, if you think that is good for you," <laughs> uh, so it was uh, that was great. He was always very supportive, and 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 because of that, I think I was successful at, at finishing. Um, but then when I started my job, everybody was very supportive. I think it was, it was a little bit different. And the fact that the isolation of being away from a main camp, which is, you know, it's very tough when you are alone and away and you don't have maybe other, you know, a lot of other colleagues to interact with or the resources of a big university. If you think about UW Madison, I mean, you either have the equipment or somebody that's an expert in it, or like you can, you can interact with so many people and work and, and get inspired and have the resources that you need to do your work. When you are at a research station, sometimes depending on which one's not all are the same, but in my case, I think that that was 
sort of like a, a limitation for me, the fact that uh, I was kind of like lonely and I didn't have a lot of interactions, even though there were two other professors there that, that were working on something different than my area. Uh, that uh, kind of like I was used to that environment as a grad student where you have like all of these peers and this conversation and, 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 and all of these new ideas come out of just, you know, random conversation on the hallway or in your student office. And so that was very isolating and, and I had a hard time. And so then I realized pretty early on that if I stayed there, um, maybe I was not going to have the sort of career that I envisioned. Uh, and that's when I decided, you know, maybe maybe it would be smart to, to look for another job somewhere else. And that's how I ended up here. Yeah, okay. I was just going to ask, like, oh, that must be your move to here. Yeah, and then that's this that position open here, which this position, my predecessor was actually a friend of mine. We were together in grad school. She graduated several years before I did, and, and this position opened here, and, and she got this position, and, and she was she was here. Uh, for several years, but uh, another position opened in her hometown. She's she's from Canada, and and she really want to go back, um, and so she moved back, and that's how this position opened. And when this position opened, uh, it was actually my advisor who told me, you know, this position opened. It was it was you know your friend's position, and and maybe you should apply. This is a great university. And once again, it was one of the places where I have never heard of UW-Madison. I mean, I knew about UW-Madison, but I didn't know about UW-Madison from, from, from the stand of being, you know, kind of like a place where a lot of the fruit research that I was uh, interested in was coming from. And so it was, yet again, one of those, like, discovering this amazing place that you just didn't know about. I Yeah, I'm in nutrition and... By random chance, I I was applying to grad school when I was I was a personal chef. I applied kind of on a whim. They give you three different departments you can apply to. I checked the box for nutritional sciences, thinking like you know I I've always had an interest in uh, in nutrition, food systems. Um, went into it, got accepted. On the orientation, they're saying like yeah, like the nutritional sciences department at UW Madison is like one of the top in the nation. And I'm just thinking like, well, this is convenient. <laughs> like, I'm glad I <laughs> showed <me>. up here. <laughs> yeah, lucky me. <laughs> How was the shift to Wisconsin? Because now you've traveled quite a few places. Like, was that transition easier for you? I uh, no, actually, it was. It wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't easy. I have to tell you that when I started the job here, it has been one of my lowest emotional, uh, like mental states ever like i always felt um and i think that has to do with uh, these are all the credits to my parents um the way that i was raised I, I was always reassured that i was able to do whatever i wanted that you know it was you know i had to put effort in it and i had the whole capacity to do whatever i wanted and, and those things got reinforced as i was like you know i was pretty good at school i was i did great at, at, when I was in college, I was doing really good when I when I was working, and then you know, yeah, of course it was hard to go to grad school, but I was successful, and 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 I did all these things. So, kind of all those things made me feel like you know very confident that I could do things. And so when when the work in Colorado was tough, uh, and I was you know obviously a little bit down because you know all of the the the, the limitations and the and the and the problems that I faced. But I, I, I made peace with it and I had this new opportunity. And so I came here and 
it was tough because there was so much pressure. You know, it, there were, it, was, it was another level of pressure. You were in, a, in, a, in an institution where it's uh, very like research oriented, where there's great expectations about the, the new professors that, that I knew that I, I, I could not, you know, I, it was not going to be the same case as in Colorado that, you know, I was there, I did what I could, but what I had, I did what I could. And people understood that I was at a research station. So the pressure of like publishing or getting students or getting grants was not the same as it's here where you have all of the resources and there's no excuse for not doing it. And so I felt a great pressure and things were very different here. They were very structured. Like there was a system, there are stakeholders, there, there's a responsibility, like expectations about this position that I, I, they didn't exist for my previous position. It was up to me to do whatever I want. I didn't have that pressure that there was here. Yeah, it, it was very tough. I was, I was putting a lot of pressure on myself. I had a second kid, so I had a six-month-old baby. Uh, and and, and it, was, it was tough. It was really, really tough. And I think that I... I was able to to you know get over this this down period through uh, my colleagues. So I, I made some you know very 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 you know good friendships with with some of my colleagues that that were not only you know faculty in other departments but they also were part of this team that we work on on fruit commercial fruit production here in Wisconsin and and. And one of my colleagues, um, Cristal Gado, who's a professor in entomology, she um, she had been hired like two years before I did, and she had gone through the same process. And so she was really one of those people that told me, you know, like this is gonna pass. This, you, you know, you're gonna do great. Just, just this, this is. I, I went through the same thing, and having that somebody else reassures you that. Because you look at everybody and everybody's like, oh, look at that professor, just full of grants and grad students and they're doing great and they know what they're doing and I don't know what I'm doing and how am I going to get this? How am I going to How am I going to publish anything? And it was just, I was so nervous and so stressed and so anxious. And so it really helped me um, hearing from other people that had been in my position just like a couple of years before me and, and seeing how successful they were only like two or three years after they had been hired to feel like, okay, well, if they did it, maybe, maybe I can also do it. And so that was, that was a great help. And I also had to say that my, the technician in my lab, the scientist in my lab that I had, um, that I inherit, she's been UW-Madison for a very long time. So she was attached to that, to that particular lab. And when I started, she started working with me. She, she was just, just a, yet another person that, you know, really, really helped me and, and gave me, you know, positive feedback and, 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 and the confidence to say, you can do it, you can do it, I'm going to help you, we're going to do it together, you know, we're going to get it done, we're going to see, we'll, we'll do it. And so that was, that was, that was great. And my department was always very supportive. I, I have to say I was very lucky. I was really lucky. I think that without that, I would have drowned because I felt like I was drowning. Really, that's a common theme that I've heard uh, not only on this podcast, which is in casual conversations too. It's everyone is overwhelmed at first and just trying to figure things out. Um, and you know, I'm glad you had a very strong support network to get you through. And, and I think that maybe that's something. And I like to talk about that. And I like to tell the grad students that because we all feel that way. That you see that everybody is like doing so well. Like you see all of your other peers and. 
sometimes people don't express that and and they they just like you know they look like they're perfect it's like it's like facebook or instagram you know that you see this you know perfect little life and and behind that there's all this stress and all these things that are happening um and you don't know about it so you start feeling like why only me why am i the only one like that and so when people don't share those things how do we want other people to you know realize that that is normal yeah and i I mean it's a daily process too um you know even with this podcast i you are someone that i also do not know really at all like we've been talking for 56 minutes total and that's the extent that we've ever talked um and someone on wednesday was the same situation as and i was nervous i always get a little nervous before these interviews um just to think like why is this person who doesn't know me at all like Mm -hmm. wanting to actually chat and then you know it works out if i i generally have the idea that most people are pretty good and want to help uh other people out have you ever have you ever had somebody that just like it's like very quiet and don't talk anything, like don't say anything. And you have to like start like coming up with like new questions to get any information. Oh, that would just drive me crazy. Yeah, not, not really. Um, I think there's a, a little bit of a selection bias for people who agree to be on here to begin with, mm. um, which I, it's helpful to remind myself, like not, you know, the, the curmudgeon who is going to just like yell at me for doing this and not doing research um, is not going to be on here. Um, <laughs> so... I get to avoid that a little bit. Um, and I would also guess like with you going through so many different experiences and hopping around, like I've, you know, before I moved to Madison, I think I was moving every single year to a different place for, you know, t- a total of like five to six years. Um, it's a it's a little bit of restarting, but then you get at the same time, it's an opportunity to just become really familiar with people and how to engage people, uh, I think at a deeper level a lot faster. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily like a survival technique, but it's also kind of skills just to be friendly with people. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. It's definitely something that you acquire with practice, but I don't know if this happened to you, but I feel like the older you get, it's harder to make those connections. Do, do, don't you feel that way? I mean, you're pretty young, but I can tell you yeah. like when I was here, like it's not that I was old, but I feel like the, the, how easy it is to make friends when you're like either in college or in grad school compared with you're like more a professional setting. It's harder. It's hard to find those people and make those connections. Maybe because we have less time or we're less like eager to find those people, especially when you come to a place where people have been living here for a very long time. They're like, why do I want to spend my time trying to, you know, become a friend with this stranger when I have all of these connections that I've, you know, cultivated for years and years and years. I, you know, I thought about this. So I, I recently just turned 30 and, you know, I've, a baby. I've got, yeah, it's still a baby. Um, I still, I'm at the age where I can go and ask someone to be a friend of mine. And I think it's socially okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that might change, you know, after I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure what I want to do yet, but if I did a postdoc and I, and I'm done when I'm like 33, 34, I've had my, my sights on, uh, DC and New York. And I think going to there when it might be a faster paced and somewhat more competitive environment, that's going to be pretty hard. At the same time, hopefully by jumping around a lot and having all these interesting stories like and knowing how to talk to people, I can just drop a little something and they'll be like, oh, wait, tell me a little bit more. And it's like, oh, okay, sure. I'd be happy to tell you. I can learn people to be my friends. I cannot stress enough how important having those social skills are in every professional setting. And I, and I feel like that is something that uh, in academia, 
And maybe we don't value that much because we always value like, oh, man, this is like a really deep thinker. What a genius this person is. But I feel like sometimes, maybe it's because I'm an extension person. I like to talk, as you can see. <laughs> but, but I feel like, you know, being able to, to make those connections, to be relatable, to, to, to connect with people are a, a huge part of being successful as a scientist as well. Absolutely. I don't know if you can teach that uh, or if there's a way of, you know, training yourself. But, but I mean, I commend you for like talking to people and trying to make those connections with people that you don't know, because that is, it's, it's key to, because it's those connections that afterwards result in collaborations in, in projects and people looking for you and people inviting you and people want to spend time with you because you are relatable. Yeah, and I I think I'm pretty lucky having like this platform because then I can just force people to to come on here and ask them <laughs> questions. Like they can always you know leave, but so far everyone's been willing to stick around for like an hour and a half <laughs> just to talk. Um, yeah, thanks. I and I do think it you know those skills are teachable. I here on campus took a, a improv for scientists class with Amy Zelensky, and I couldn't recommend that highly enough. I think it was one really fun to do, but also showing people, you know, most communication that you do is improvised to begin with, um, but just also teaching you a bit more skills to go on the fly. Um, you know, yeah. you can have these presentations that you do and that you're prepared for. Something will always go wrong. Um, you're going to miss like whatever cues that you have and just being able to roll with it is such a good yeah. key skill. Um, but I, I'm with you too. Like with, with some of these research presentations, uh, I think during my time in my PhD, I've gone from just kind of like, oh, you know, this presentation isn't the best, like great science, but delivering this message isn't that great. To now I'm, I'm angry when I don't see <laughs> a great presentation. Um, so I think that just gets, keep, keeps being perpetuated. There's an idea like at the end, if you're saying, oh, this is a great presentation. I think a lot of the times people are saying, well, this is really great science, but the way that the message wasn't it, the message itself wasn't delivered that well. And I've been in so many presentations of my own field where after 10 minutes, like I'm kind of zoning out. Um, and yeah. that is another thing people do not talk about. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. I think that being able to, to communicate, it's communicate the, the science. It's, it's as important as, as doing great science. I mean, what's the point of being great and discovering and doing all this great stuff if you're not able to communicate that? And 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 that sometimes I, I feel like that's you know how to encourage students to to do that to to be able to overcome their fear of sometimes like presenting uh, and not being perfect and and not you know saying things perfectly and then they stress about it. That when you think about it, when you are listening to a webinar or you're listening to a presentation the way that that you're less critical of people making mistakes or having you know a technical problem or things like you don't care about it but when you when you when you're experiencing they're like oh my god i'm gonna be like you know everybody will always remember as the person that you know soon didn't work or had this, this and this and it's not the case and the other thing that i realized is that a lot of people are you know scared to death to talk in public like it's amazing. So many people. I I I I you know interact so much with growers and growers are so used to seeing us giving talks all the time. And sometimes I I tell growers it's like, would you be would you, do you want to be in a panel? Like we all sit in this table and we all talk to this audience. 
I'm crazy. No, 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 no. I would never do that. And people are just like super scared. I mean, obviously some of them, they're great. But yeah, that I, I, I think that it's a skill that I don't know if I develop, if I naturally have it, but that's something that I also really like is just like being able you know, to talk and to express and communicate myself. Uh, that has uh, really helped me in, in my career. Sometimes I say things that I should not say. <laughs> but that's, I think that's the secret of it too. Um, I think that's, so I, you know, I've dabbled a little bit in comedy and the more vulnerable you can get is the secret skill to getting people on your side. So mm-hmm. if you can show like, I screw up all the time, people are like, oh, you know, he's relaxed, he's casual. You're going to just have like a casual story and you, you just naturally have people lean into that um, versus that I, you know, I, at the same time that I try to have these, you know, vulnerable talks with people on this podcast, I'm also a perfectionist. That side of me is like, oh, well, you always have to have like the perfect questions and the perfect transitions, um, either presentations or like here on this podcast. Uh, but I've challenged myself <laughs> in previous episodes too to just put in weird uh, voices that I, I know not everyone will like, um, and also just put in the scripts that I make. Um, and like, it's okay. That's kind of the whole point of this podcast. And I, I also have to live those principles at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we always, we always want to be perfect. We always want everything to, we want to reflect that, you know, perfection that everything that we do is, is great and it's perfect. Um, uh, but, but that's not real life. And, and I think yeah. that when you're comfortable with the fact that you're going to make mistakes or things are not going to go the way that, that you wish they, they went, it doesn't mean that what you did was wrong or, or you know, you, you just really screwed up. And the thing is that, you know, maybe somebody will listen to some of your episodes and, and, and a day after they listen, they forgot about it. You know, they're like, oh my God, I, I, I don't know, I screwed up this way or I said something inappropriate or, or I messed up that concept or I explained this wrong in this lecture. And you're like, oh my God. And then the people just like, oh, really? You did that? I don't remember. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And also too, like, um, I think people have this huge fear of people just like hating what they're producing if it's something that's creative. But really in the end, like you're never going to have everyone like what you creating and that's fine it's you're just they're not going to be your people to begin with and everyone's going to like uh peaches or grapes or apples <laughs> or cranberries or cranberries yes yeah um i'm going to ask you one question and then we're going to get to our game before it's too late so um what is something you did recently that's uncharacteristic of you hmm. well i think that it's not something that i particularly have done uh, but I think that during this pandemic, I kind of like relax a little bit more, like, you know, like not engage so much on certain things that before would really upset me. And so I felt like there's so many things that have been overwhelming from, you know, being, working at home. And, you know, for a lot of us, I have kids having the kids at home for more than a year and all those things that before like small little things would just like upset me like really fast. And now I felt like I've just let in the gulp. It's just like, you know, this is out of my control. This is just like one extra thing to worry about. And all these other things that I have to worry about that, you know, things like, and, and 
I'm, I'm very into like things being organized and being clean. And so especially things related with, with home that now I'm like, well, the kitchen is messy, whatever. Nobody's going to die. You know, I'm just going to keep working here. I'm just going to keep doing it. I won't care that there's a mess there. So that is kind of like really uncharacteristically because I'm always like, want to have like everything. So what we're talking before, everything's perfect and everything in order. And now I feel like I've kind of like, okay, let's go. <laughs> yeah. I hope to get to that state. Um, I'm the same way. I like to have uh, things very clean and organized. And yesterday I was reorganizing the dishes in the dishwasher. Don't tell Becca that she put in, you know, <laughs> the bowl wrong, but. <laughs> I, I love control. I love control. I love to have control of everything, everything. And, and so I, I really, really, really try to very hard think of the situations where I'm, I'm, I'm upset because I don't have the control to say like, you know, like, just let go. Like things will just work out. Just let go. Just don't, don't stress about not having the control. Uh, and my husband is that way. He's just like, there's nothing that you can do to change this. Just, just let it go. I'm like, I wish I was like you in that because I can't. I always like start like thinking or thinking or thinking about this, like how to solve it, how to change it. But I feel like lately I've been, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm just so tired. I'm just like letting things go. <laughs> maybe yes. don't tell that to my grad students, especially Becca <laughs> or any of my grad students. like, well, she's not going to give us any attention now. <laughs> Yeah, don't worry. This this podcast is going nowhere. Uh, um, well, we're gonna we're gonna test uh, a little bit of lack of control right now in our in our game, um, but hopefully in a fun way. So before I tell you what it is, I'm gonna need a few suggestions for you. So I'm just gonna ask you for a, a few different categories of things. You can give me whatever comes to your mind, and then we'll go from there. Um, so first, I'm gonna ask you for an adjective. I don't know, small. Small, okay. Um, and then uh, an animal. Mm, a panther. Panther, okay. Then I need a color. Red. Red. And a year. 1993. 1993. Uh, a famous person. I don't know. Let's think about maybe a female scientist. Uh, how about um, Ada Lovelace? Okay. So who was Ada Lovelace? It's a good question I should have asked instead of just pretending I knew, which will come back and bite me in the butt later, because I just acted like I knew and and just didn't think that I was going to have to repeat the name in an improv game that I made up. So Ada Lovelace, according to Wikipedia, was one of the first to recognize that machines had applications beyond pure calculations, and she was one of the first to publish an algorithm carried out by such a machine. As a result, she is often regarded as one of the first computer programmers. And then an instrument. Ooh, well, my kids are just playing the piano. Okay, piano. Uh, and last, I need a fruit. Ah, uh, an avocado. An avocado. Okay, great. All right. So um, I would, I guess, this game for you. Uh, I double checked with Becca to make sure this is going to be something that you might be into. Um, and I guessed correctly, which is great. So we are going to be moonlighting as sommeliers um, today, and we're going to be reviewing never-released wines and recommending food pairings or different activities to go with the wines. So we're going to do three different wines, and they're going to be kind of created based on the words that you gave me. Oh. So we can 
we'll just go back and forth. We can review this. Uh, I'll, I'll kind of like help shape the flow of this conversation, but uh, it's going to be all made up. So okay. the first wine that we're going to try is it's a brand new red wine made with small grapes from uh, Chateau Panther. Oh, okay. And so Chateau Panther is really well known for its uh, plum forward notes um, from all of its small grapes. So I'm, I'm enjoying this on a Friday afternoon. I think it is helping me concentrate better on this interview. So, well, the good thing about this wine is that, you know, these, these small berries, they're, they're like, because they're small, uh, they have a lot of skin to pulp ratio. And so there's the, the very, uh, the flavor and the aroma that you get from it, it's very intense because it has a lot of that skin. Uh, but at the same time, because this type, because of Chateau um, Panther is, is very close to the coast, the wine is more of like a kind of like a Pinot Noir wine. So it's a more like, it's a delicate wine that is not like a very aggressive wine that you would think like a wine from like a Cabernet Sauvignon, for example, from somewhere in Napa Valley. So it goes great with things like, um, like light fruit, like light, something like light that you could eat something like, for example, like a ceviche that has some avocado on it. Mm-hmm. What, that, that I would think is the perfect pairing for that. Yes, uh, I couldn't agree more. This this new small grape wine um, is is much like a panther. It is balanced. Um, it's it's stealthy but also strong in its flavor. Um, so you pair with you know I would even recommend uh, like you were saying ceviche, um, uh, a nice white fish to go with it as well. That would be perfect. It's like almost like the 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 the, the winemaker and you know, uses this perfect mathematical formula in which combines all of these different components to make a really balanced wine that is, you know, has a great sensation in your mouth and full of, full of this great aroma, but also has a, a great taste. And so, you know, you have this, you know, overall experience from when you, you first smell it and you get in your mouth. I would really recommend this wine for uh, kids' birthday parties. Not so much because the flavors for the kids to get through. For the kids, so that <laughs> afterwards they go to sleep and they, and they let the rest of us drink the wine. I don't think that that would be appropriate. <laughs> Maybe we're not going to get any wine sponsors uh, <laughs> from this, but okay. I see you disagree. I, I will respect your opinion. Um, okay, but we're going to go into our, our second wine, which is uh, a red wine bottled in 1993 from the Atucho Winery. Do you, do you have any foods that might go with this? You know, given that it's a red wine, um, 1993 has been, you know, aged quite a bit. It's it's a some more um, kind of like mature wine, maybe maybe a little bit more like feels like a, a more like because of all the tannins that you get and all the structure that the aging wine gets from barrels. Uh, I I would recommend it with something that that you know is a little bit also like a stronger dish, something that also has a lot of character so that you balance it so that you don't have a wine that might be very very strong. Uh, um, and, and rich with something that is very light, which is kind of opposite to the one that we were talking before. Mm. So maybe maybe something like you know, if you like meat, maybe some some beef or something that you know, like a stew that is cooked. If you are you know vegetarian, maybe you could pair it with something like mushrooms or truffles that also you know have absolutely uh, they're, they're very uh, strong. Uh, I think that that would be a good pairing. Absolutely, I think this you know I couldn't agree more with you and. 
this wine is going to be one that you want to break out for really special occasions when you impress your friends. Um, they age this wine in a very different way than traditionally. So they didn't keep it in one uh, cellar. They actually they started in Chile, then they brought it to uh, Ithaca, and then to the western part of Colorado, and then to Wisconsin, and then back to Chile. Uh, it's very amazing. You know what is great about that is that in every of those places that they move them, they actually produce great wine. So you have some really good wine in Chile. You have really good Mediterranean conditions. You have the beautiful wines from the Finger Lake, the amazing wines from Colorado on the Western Slope, really, really good, rich wines. And then the wine from Wisconsin, from, you know, the grapes that we grow here, the cold hardy hybrid grapes, there are fantastic wines. So, so I mean, it's really a, a, a wonderful combination of, of places to, to bring that wine. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad you're talking about cold and grapes because the next thing we have is a, a, a dessert wine uh, that is bottled to celebrate a couple getting married. This marriage didn't last, which explains why we got this bottle um, and also maybe explains the label that is uh, Edda Lovesay playing the piano while sitting on an avocado. Yeah, you know, with, with, that label, with that label, I mean, I don't know who did the marketing there. And, and, but yeah, maybe they don't pay them enough. Maybe. Uh, and maybe that marketer came back with a vendetta against this couple and just <laughs> ruined it. Um, but despite that, you know, it is, it is very nice. I, I am glad we're having this with some figs right now. Um, it's a nice break from the cold of the uh, winter in Wisconsin. A little bit of sweetness uh, makes me think of spring a little bit. Well, I wonder, I mean, I'm not sure we would really have to look into into the bottle, but I wonder maybe maybe it has a little bit of ice wine or it's an ice wine, you know, very, very sweet. I, I personally uh, am not a huge fan of, of sweet wines. Uh, I, I, I don't like them a lot, but, I mean, you know, there's a wine for every single taste and a lot of people like very sweet wines. But, yeah, that would not be a relationship that it would last very long with me. Yeah, even though you know this wine was very sweet, in the end the relationship was not. Just fail. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not a very sweet person apparently. <laughs> um, and with that, <laughs> that's what we're gonna start. <laughs> that was, a, that was, that was a great, a great game because uh, I really like wine, as you can see. Yes, I heard. I was. I thought this would be up your alley, and then I heard like you had uh, a lot of. Uh, I think it's paintings of wines and lots of different bottles from like the places that you've lived. And it's like, okay, this is perfect. We'll roll with this. I taught. Uh, I, I taught a class on 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 wine at UW, but with a couple of of uh, summers ago with with my colleague Claudia Calderon, and we did. Um, it was sort of like a, a class that was about wine appreciation, and so we we it was just you know, very general, not for majors, for anybody that wanted to take it. And so we talk about different places of the world that uh, were producing wine and their, you know, climates and how that affected the wines. But then there was a, a portion of it that was the tasting, which would taste a lot of different wines that, you know, people have heard about, but they re don't really know what they are or what they mean or why, you know, why a Bordeaux is a Bordeaux or why the wines in California are different. And so we had a blast and we tasted a lot of wine and a lot of it was, you know, describing them. And yeah, you probably got paid. Well, it's part of my job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Amaya, it's been a blast to have you on. Likewise. It's been a lot of fun. Yes. Thanks for uh, tasting made up wines with me. Hopefully we can do it again. Yes. Yeah, sounds good.
Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush. I hope you resonated with the random changes in life that turned into something wonderful, like asking a professional to play silly make-me-ups about wine. Deeper Than Data with Ben Rush was produced and created by me, Ben Rush. Music by me, Ben Rush. Made up wine pairings mostly by Amaya, but also sometimes by me, Ben Rush. Until next time, be well. Also testing, not just burps. Just as burps. Yeah, just burps. I am also burp blue.